Hey, it's Will. Before we start the show, we want to make a public announcement that we are recruiting for two new Astro Soundbites co-hosts to join us starting in 2024. I am very sad to be graduating and leaving the podcast in a few months and Kirsten shortly after, but that leaves an opening for you. So go to our website, find the link, apply. It's not that hard. A couple of short answers and a one to two minute audio clip of you explaining a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. That's it. And then we'll be in touch. If you have any questions, send us an email. All right. And here's the show. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. And I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe through simulations and observations. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 84, Abominable Ice. So as someone that grew up in a warmer area, I absolutely hate the cold. And as we know, it is winter throughout the entire world. There are no continents <laughs> that are below the northern hemisphere. And there is nobody experiencing summer at this time. Absolutely <laughs> No one. Wow. Just being excluded. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I'm on a different planet, actually, guys. Yeah, it's amazing <laughs> how the Earth is just like half of a sphere. It's incredible. There's just no bottom half. Yeah, it's so strange. I would be so jealous of those people that were in those warm regions. Yeah, how would you even celebrate the holidays in the summer? Like... That's, that's just not right. It is weird. <laughs> it is weird, guys, okay? Yeah. Because of this, and because the Southern Hemisphere clearly doesn't exist, we're going to be focusing on ice today. And to get us prepped to really dive in to these pretty big icebergs, I've got some intro questions for you guys. To start off, what can studying ice tell us about planets? Well, just because we're used to water ice doesn't mean that's the only kind of ice. You can get ice out of lots of different chemicals in the solar system. For example, on Pluto, there is nitrogen ice. That's cool. On Mars, there's carbon dioxide ice. Also cool. And then there are the icy moons, Europa, Enceladus, Charon, which have all sorts of flavors of ice. So studying ice allows us to study the composition, the surface, the geology, even maybe the history of planets in our solar system. And it also turns out that liquids in space are really rare because you need pressure to get liquids to form. And we have an atmosphere to provide the pressure, but there are plenty of other bodies in the solar system that do not. So they don't have any surface liquids. In that case, studying ice can be really useful because ice would change a lot slower than liquid. So it can give us some idea of the history of that planet. Ice may have trapped volatiles that were at one point present in the atmosphere. We think this is the case on Mars, and there's a big interest in studying the polar ice caps on Mars. Another reason that ice is valuable is the habitability question. In planetary systems, we define something called an ice line, which is the boundary between where you can really form ice or any closer than that, you really can't form ice. And the Earth, it turns out, is, is pretty close to the ice line, and it was really important when this system is forming. So studying ice can help us understand the evolution of a planetary system. So there are a lot of things that ice can tell us about planets. Wait. 
well, what about subsurface oceans? I thought that there could be oceans under ice in our solar system hiding dolphins and whales and other life. Or I don't know. Just isn't that a thing? Aren't they going to go drill into the ice on a planet's moon somewhere in our solar system and look for life? There is subsurface oceans, we believe, on the icy moons. In that case, the ice shell provides the pressure because there's no atmosphere. So I said surface liquids. You can get liquids deep under the surface, but it's a hundred kilometer thick ice shell. That's not really something you're going to drill through anytime soon. So it's fun to think about and discuss, but it's in no way practical at the moment. I didn't realize it was a hundred kilometers. Depends on the planet, but yeah. Well, if we're talking about Europa, yeah, we're not getting to that ocean. Yeah, Europa's not 100 kilometers. I think Enceladus is the one that's 100. I think Europa's like mm. 20 to 30, but could be even a lot more. It could be 50. So it depends. And it doesn't matter. Once you get to the multiple kilometers on another planet situation, it's not really being drilled through. The most we've drilled is like a few centimeters on Mars. This theme of drilling deep into the ice is going to come up again in a few minutes when I talk about the ice cube detector. Oh. I guess that's a good segue into my next question. What can studying neutrinos tell us about? Yeah, that's a great question. So first, let's define what neutrinos are. They're quite the elusive little particle, but they're actually the most abundant particle with mass in our universe. So neutrinos are fermions, or more specifically, they're leptons, which is a subcategory of fermions. So for example, electrons are also leptons. The key thing is that neutrinos open up a new message for multi-messenger astronomy, in that they allow us to probe high-energy astrophysics not accessible at other wavelengths. So let's run through a few examples. There are neutrinos emitted from the sun, which could help us understand nuclear reactions in the sun's core. In core collapse supernovae, 99% of the energy is in neutrinos. And neutrinos can escape right away, whereas photons get really trapped in the hot ball of exploded material that happens when there's a supernova. So they could actually be really useful, and this is used in certain instruments on Earth. So if we see neutrinos coming from a supernova, this can give us time to point our other instruments to look at the supernova at different wavelengths. So there's a lot of follow-up of different instruments. So for example, with fast radio bursts, there's people that will look for neutrinos coming from those types of bursts when they go off and other types of transient activity. Neutrinos are just one other messenger, not specifically on the electromagnetic spectrum, but allow us to actually probe the physics that's going on in a different way. Another interesting part of science that neutrinos can tell us about is actually radioactivity in the Earth's interior. Certain radioactivity in our Earth's interior can produce antineutrinos, which can then be detected by neutrino detectors and help us learn more about the Earth's interior without drilling way into the Earth's center, which, as Will has very explicitly pointed out, we cannot ever do. But the neutrino astronomy field is still really, really young. The first astrophysical neutrino was detected with Ice Cube, which I'll talk a bit more about later, in just 2013. And then the first high-energy neutrino that was coincident with a blazar, which is basically another type of quasar with a relativistic jet pointed towards us, was only detected in 2017. And then my astrobite today will actually be talking about the very first detection of neutrinos from our own Milky Way. And this was actually only successful with machine learning. So we're still really in the infancy of neutrino astronomy in terms of a subfield. So why are neutrinos so hard to detect? Yeah, we also sometimes define neutrinos in how they're interacting with other particles, but they interact very rarely. So that's what makes them the hardest to detect. Neutrinos can produce muons from their interactions, but they look very similar to the muons produced by cosmic rays. So for example, with Ice Cube, for every 100 million atmospheric muons and neutrinos, there's just one astrophysical neutrino that Ice Cube sees. So that's literally one in 100 million chances oh, wow. to actually Whoa. see an astrophysical neutrino, which is pretty insane. There's a couple different ways that they can kind of disentangle atmospheric and astrophysical neutrinos. Obviously, astrophysical neutrinos will be higher energy. 
They can also use simultaneous muon events from the same cosmic rays that are producing the atmospheric neutrinos. So if they see a muon event from a cosmic ray, and then they also see a bunch of atmospheric neutrinos, they can say, okay, this is definitely from a cosmic ray or atmosphere, and it's not the astrophysical neutrino. So they use those two methods to kind of disentangle the two. One of the important things that I think we're going to talk about in your Astrobyte, Sabrina, is about how they're detected, and you use heavy water or something else, an unusual type of chemical in a reaction chamber to try to get a few interactions with neutrinos. But whenever I see a picture of neutrino detectors, it reminds me of the 2008 movie Eagle Eye. Either of you seen that movie? No, no, I've never seen it. Okay, it's a bad movie starring Shia LaBeouf. Just absolutely bad. <laughs> but I happened to watch it about half a dozen times as a kid. So now I know all the parts of it. And there's an evil computer who uses like storage devices and there's always water there for some reason, and it just looks like a neutrino detector. So I'm not saying one was inspired by the other, but <laughs> it's it's possible. There had already been neutrino detectors being constructed at the time of that movie. So maybe the movie was inspired by Ice Cube. That's what I'm thinking, is that someone saw a picture of it in the news and was like, oh, that would be a cool idea for a set. And the other thing I like about neutrinos is that there are about a trillion per second that pass through your hand. That's a fun fact. As we're slowly getting towards Ice Cube, this brings me to my last intro question. How can ice or cold be helpful for telescopes? When you sent around this question, I thought where you were going with this was like, how is it useful to detect ice using a telescope. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, ice is highly reflective, so we could easily detect it on exoplanets because it's got a higher albedo than other materials. But now I'm realizing you meant <laughs> useful as in keeping telescopes cold. <laughs> in which case, yes, that is very useful because telescopes, like everything else, if they're at a certain temperature... They will emit black body radiation pertaining to that temperature, and that could be confused with light you're trying to detect, especially if you're looking in the infrared. On the Earth, the surface temperature radiates in the mid-infrared, so all you'll see is your own heat signature and the heat signature of everything on Earth. So that's why James Webb, Spitzer, other space telescopes in the infrared have to be cooled down to very low temperatures, and then those on the ground... They just cool down the optics. You don't have to cool the entire building, but you have to cool the optics as well. Ooh, okay. So you've made the case for why we should put telescopes in cold regions, and I'm going to make the case for why sometimes it doesn't matter. Is that okay, Will? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go for so, it. So actually, a lot of instruments, especially like cosmic microwave background experiments, maybe looking at the polarization of the CMB, they use cryogenic cooling. So cryogenics is the study of how things behave at extremely low temperatures. By extremely low temperatures, we're talking like near absolute zero. Obviously, we can't reach absolute zero. It's impossible. But we want to get as close as we can so that we can actually, as I was saying, disentangle that thermal noise from the actual science that we want to find in our data. So a lot of instruments, like for example, the Simons Array... CMB polarization experiment in Chile has to cool their detectors to 250 millikelvin, which in itself is an entire PhD, like working on cooling those detectors. And really, yeah, they have to develop like really, really intense refrigerators called doers. Have you guys ever heard that word? D-E-W-A-R? No, absolutely not. Is this the laser thing? No, they have to like literally use all this fancy cryogenic science to cool something to near absolute zero is so hard i thought it was done with lasers maybe for certain instruments but for a lot of the cmb experiments they use really really high-tech fridges or freezers i guess <laughs> i love that but actually okay in antarctica as my friend who lived there for a year told me he was working on the south pole telescope shout out to Amon. okay stop 
How do you know the most interesting people? <laughs> He's a PhD student at University of Melbourne. I want to go to Antarctica. You can. You can apply to be a winter over. Okay, I'm going to do it. Anyway, so I was thinking that because we need to cool our instruments to such low temperatures, that being in Antarctica probably would help, right? But actually, when we put our instruments at even the coldest places on Earth with extremely sensitive detectors like those that we need with CMB experiments, they need to be kept at extremely cold, consistent temperatures. So it doesn't actually really help that much. Maybe if something is cold, it gives a little bit of a boost to the refrigeration. But in the grand scheme of things, there's still a lot of work that goes into keeping it at consistent temperatures close to absolute zero. What do we mean by consistent here? Because how much is the temperature changing at Antarctica? Is it tens of degrees? Yeah, I think it fluctuates. I mean, when the sun's up, Versus when the sun's down, you can get gradients, right? But I think your point is if you're going below one Kelvin, it doesn't really matter if you start at 200 or 300 because there's so much energy has to be spent anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So if it's like 300 Kelvin versus what's a hot day in Antarctica in Kelvin? Oh, I don't know. But that's a really interesting question. And I think it probably does make a difference for instruments like JWST that are literally in vacuums in space there's less change in temperatures thank you guys so much for answering all of my questions so now it's time for us to put on our gloves and snowshoes because sabrina's taking us to antarctica to tell us all about these neutrinos should i get my mittens yes of course okay so my astrobite today is called neutrinos from our backyard ice cube sees the milky way in neutrinos it's by Jesse Twaits, and it's on a paper that was published in Science. Some big science here, guys. Observation of high-energy neutrinos from the galactic plane. And the authors are just the entire Ice Cube collaboration. This came out in June of this year, so June 2023. You've teased us so much about Ice Cube. Now you got to tell us what it is. I will. Well, first, as we discussed in the introduction, neutrinos are really, really, really difficult to detect. The first detection of a high-energy neutrino was from 2017. My astrobite describes the first detection of high-energy neutrinos from our very own Milky Way using Ice Cube. So let me tell you about the premier neutrino hunting experiment on Earth, buried deep within the Antarctic ice top, the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory. Cue ice ice baby. I don't know, I just needed that song to come on as I'm describing it. So Ice Cube has been looking for neutrinos for 10 years. It's located at the South Pole in Antarctica, and it's operated by the University of Wisconsin-Madison, supported by the National Science Foundation. So it consists of more than 5,000 sensors located up to almost three kilometers below the ice top. So all the way down to the bedrock. So sort of between the regolith, which is the loose material on top of a planet, and the bedrock itself below all the ice. I was looking up and preparing for this episode how they do it. They use this thing called a hot water drill, which they like spray hot water and they put all these detectors on strings that they hang within the hole of the hot water drill. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, super cool. So to clarify, they're drilling through the ice to get to the rock, and that's where it's going to sit. The detectors actually sit like within the ice itself, but they go all the way down to the bedrock. So they go as basically as far as they possibly can at this place where they put Ice Cube. The key sensor that they're putting on these strings that they hang within the ice are called DOMs, which are digital optical modules. And each of them has a photomultiplier tube, which can be used to detect light. So DOMs are drilled into the ground on one of these 86 strings using this hot water drill. Amazing. We have this really cool detector. How does it actually detect neutrinos? As we said, neutrinos interact with things extremely rarely. So there are two types of ways that Ice Cube can detect neutrinos. One is called tracks, which has less than one degree resolution. And I'm going to sort of walk you through how Ice Cube detects a neutrino from the neutrino interaction itself, because it's 
quite a lot of steps. The way that ice cube detects neutrinos is when one neutrino collides with an atomic nucleus in the ice, a muon or other charged lepton, so that might be like an electron or a tau particle, is produced. The muon moves through ice producing Cherenkov radiation, which is basically like a sonic boom for light produces this faint blue glow that can be picked up by the PMTs or the photomultiplier tubes that I talked about on those DOM sensors that are hanging on those strings in the ice cube detector deep in the ice. And Cherenkov radiation happens when light travels faster than the speed of light in that medium. It's not actually traveling faster, but it's like a different velocity of that light that's traveling faster than the speed of light. So Actually, the shock coming out from a sonic boom is nonlinear, but for light, it's linear. So there's actually quite a big difference between sonic boom for sound and the analogous sonic boom for light, but can kind of think about that as related when we're talking about Cherenkov radiation. So the neutrino has to interact with the water to make a muon, which has to interact with the medium to make a light particle, which then has to interact with the detector to be detected. Yeah, exactly. And then there are all these other ways that the neutrinos that are created from interactions within the atmosphere get very easily confused with astrophysical neutrinos. I'm not a particle physicist, guys, so I don't know like all of the ways that (laughs) neutrino interactions can occur that can cause this, but it's really complex and makes things really, really confusing, which is kind of the whole novelty of the astrobite itself. All right. Sounds good to me. Let's keep it rolling. So then I talked about tracks, which have less than one degree resolution, which is from neutrino interactions, which create muons within the ice. And you can actually kind of relatively precisely pinpoint where the neutrino is coming from. But in this astrobite, they use something called cascades, which are described as these short ranged particle showers, and they have less than 10 degree resolution. So they show up more like spherical events or point like in the detectors. And they're mostly from interactions of electron and tau neutrinos. They can also be caused by scattering of neutrinos off of nuclei. But the key thing here is that they have larger uncertainties in localization compared to the track type of detection. Previously, we were only able to set limits on how many neutrinos were actually coming from the Milky Way. But in the very first of its kind, the authors applied machine learning to their data to actually pick out promising cascade events. Okay, I'm going to do it. What? I'm going to ask the question. (laughs) Do you know why they decided to go with machine learning? Yeah, it seems so complicated for such a simple (laughs) problem. It's only like a thing hitting a thing, hitting a thing, hitting a thing. You could just (laughs) model that. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. They do have their models that come into play here. They have templates for what they think that the diffuse emission of neutrinos from the Milky Way should look like based on gamma ray observations, actually. Oh. But the reason that they use machine learning is because IceCube sees 27,000 events per second. And most of those events are just from the atmosphere, from atmospheric neutrinos. Disentangling the atmospheric neutrinos from the astrophysical neutrinos we sort of need some very fancy statistical process. In this astrobite, they were specifically looking for diffuse emission from the Milky Way. So as I alluded to a bit earlier, is they use templates, kind of like what they use in gravitational wave detections, to match what our models predict with what they actually see for neutrinos over the entire galactic plane. And they use gamma ray observations because... In another long chain of particle physics events, in high energy scenarios where particles are accelerated, both neutral and charged pions are produced at the same time as gamma rays. So they can kind of link those two together and use observations of gamma rays to constrain their models. So what did they find? After all this, all these crazy atmospheric neutrinos getting in the way, they're models from gamma ray observations, sifting through all this data with machine learning, they find a 4.48 sigma detection that neutrinos are coming from diffuse emission in the Milky Way. This would have taken 75 years of events for detection without machine learning. Wow. What? So maybe that's really what answers your question, Kirsten. Oh my Kirsten. gosh. <laughs> 
Wait, how do they know that it would take 75 years of detections? I think probably to produce a detection with the same signal to noise. Oh. Because they really needed the convolutional neural networks to pick out the promising cascade events. I don't think they would have seen as many in like the huge ocean of all the noise and atmospheric neutrinos. So it's really like picking a needle in a haystack. That is so cool. I mean, this is like one of those astrobites where machine learning comes in clutch. Yeah, it's actually essential. So Santa Claus brought galactic neutrino astronomy <laughs> this year, guys. <laughs> and there's a bunch of upgrades to IceCube in the future. So we'll be learning, hopefully in future episodes, more about galactic neutrino astronomy. They're adding radio components on the surface next to IceCube and more optical components below. So they're making IceCube in itself into a multi-messenger wow. instrument three messages. I think that's maybe the most because they have like optical telescopes that they place by radio instruments, but neutrino detector, optical, and a radio telescope, that's like going to be an insanely powerful instrument in high energy astrophysics and multi-messenger astronomy. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Right? That was a great astrobite. Thanks for bringing that. And now it's time for our Lovecraftian symphony of the icy tundra, <laughs> a.k.a. <laughs> our space sound. Perfect. Love it. I'm getting better. Lovecraftian is such a good word. No. <laughs> I was like... Honestly, the beginning sounded no. like some sort of space sound. <laughs> oh, this is like the equivalent of Rick rolling for us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, close your eyes again. <laughs> the real space sound. was pretty huh so we got two things going on this sort of descending note and then the occasional drip situation mm -hmm. it sounded like something was being dropped in water do you know what it is well i feel like you know no i don't i need to think <laughs> about it for 10 seconds i feel like it's some sort of loss of energy okay like something's slowing down and losing energy i'm trying to think of what phenomena that could be I'm going to go with a radial profile of something. Ooh. So mm. it's like decreasing density or pressure or something of that nature. And the drips are designating a boundary. So I was thinking maybe it could be Earth's interior, but that's not spacey enough. Maybe it's a supernova radial profile. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> are these your final answers? I didn't have one yet. I, okay, I want to okay. be on the radio profile train too, though. Sorry. Okay. Radio profile. That's what we're going with. Yes. Locked in. Okay. You are both wrong. All right. <laughs> I actually had another answer, guys. I was just going with Will Peer Pressure. I know exactly <laughs> what it is. No, no more guesses. It's actually a spectrum of a exoplanet that has water. So the drips were the peaks of the water oh. in the atmosphere. Yeah. Interesting. Wait, the peaks of the water in the atmosphere. So this is a transmission spectrum. So basically where oh. the water has the highest peaks are where you see or hear the drips. Who made this sonification? James Webb. Wow, James, not a great sonification <laughs> because it like decreased monotonically, right? Yeah. So it doesn't tell you the spectrum. All it tells you is like, okay, wavelength is decreasing as you move to the right on the plot. And then there are some drips. I think it's pretty ineffective as a sonification. Yeah. Like what is being plotted in terms of frequency of the note? Is it the amplitude of the light? No. I believe it's not. Oh, it's the volume. 
Yeah, but that's very hard to hear. Your ear doesn't hear volume nearly as easily as pitch. So it would have been fine to just like scan across and go, (laughs) and then it would have been so obvious that there were peaks. Yeah. Sorry to hate on this sonification. We've just been doing this long enough that I think we know what's good (laughs) and what's not. No, I actually like the commentary because I feel like all the time we're always like, yeah, it's great. And when I was listening to it, too, I was like, I think they will never guess this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to sonify anything. It's just a matter of making things sonified in an effective way. I feel like maybe we should actually give more hints for sonification. Like volume corresponds to amplitude in this sonification because otherwise how can we know like you can use volume for frequency or you can use pitch for frequency you know what i mean Mm -hmm. well it goes back to when we discussed in our sonification episodes how it's Mm -hmm. used in this case if you wanted to learn something from this and you were visually impaired you would use the screen reader to read out the description first so you know what to listen for and I don't think you would be confused as to what corresponds to what, but you may not get the picture. And so it could be ineffective. I don't think that they've done anything wrong per se. It's just not as effective. Mm-hmm. So on that note. Which note? The the last note or the first note? <laughs> I think I want to go with the last note. <laughs> Transitioning a little bit. Next up is Will. He's going to be our meteorologist and let us know how much ice and snow we should prep for, for our extraterrestrial visits. And (laughs) in honor of his astrobite, I will once again ice roll everyone, perhaps? Yes, roll us! (laughs) 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 okay (laughs) of course this astrobite is called ice ice baby and it was written by Janice stour about a paper entitled the ice coverage of earth-like planets orbiting fgk stars the paper was written by caitlin wilhelm and others published in the planetary science journal Okay, so as we all know, exoplanets are important, yada, yada, life, habitable zones, all that stuff. Okay, who cares? Ice. You're hurting my feelings. Ice. Ice is what it's all about. Okay, so let's start with some Earth ice, and then we'll jump to some exo ice. Right now, Earth has polar ice caps, but that was definitely not the case for a lot of Earth's history. We know that at one point, Earth was all ice, and we call that snowball Earth, and it is not as fun as it sounds. And at other times, Earth had no ice at all. And that was due to the fact that almost all of the continents were at one point located near the equator. So I think Pangaea was like mostly equatorial, so there was really no place to get ice. Interestingly on Earth, you get positive feedback related to ice. So if you have a lot of ice... It's more reflective, and then it gets colder because it reflects sunlight and you get more ice. So this is how the snowball phases start. Another interesting sort of loop you can get is when it's really cold, all the plants start to die off, and the plants sequester atmospheric carbon, which sink down to the bottom of the ocean and remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which decreases the greenhouse effect and makes Earth colder. I thought that was kind of cool. I learned that from preparing for this episode. Very Literally neat. an ice roll. Exactly. <laughs> Just, you know, a snowball down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Tectonic activity was a big part of Earth's history as well. That can shake things up even when it's sort of in a runaway effect. So Earth has had long ice ages, short ice ages, pretty much the whole gamut of possible ice configurations. But you can also get a runaway greenhouse effect which is what probably happened on Venus and might happen on Earth someday. I don't mean imminent global warming. I mean in a billion years could happen depending on the trajectory of the sun. But what the authors wanted to see is what kind of ice coverages would you expect on exoplanets around F, G, and K stars? So those are a little bit cooler or a little bit hotter than the sun. So, you know, Earth-like planets around sun-like stars 
do you get Earth-like ice? And maybe you could detect this someday. It's sort of hard to detect right now. We're not technologically there yet. So like any good scientist, they did a modeling paper <laughs> and <laughs> kept things pretty simple with a one-dimensional energy balance model. So I actually, I think the dimension is latitude. When I think one dimension, because I'm an atmospheres guy. You think height. Exactly. That's the dimension of greatest interest. But no, latitude makes a lot of sense because that's where ice forms. Mm. Depends on the latitude. They had to put in some assumptions to this model. So they assumed the planets they were simulating were similar to Earth in the fact that they had 24-hour day. They had reasonable split between sea and land. They had some geography, some atmosphere. They're not tidally locked. All the good, friendly things you want in a habitable planet. And they cared about two kind of cases. The static case, where the orbit and rotation stays the same across the planet's history, like for Earth. Or dynamic. You get changes in orbits, changes in rotation, obliquity, which is actually what has happened to Mars. Mars's orbital tilt has varied a lot historically. And it's believed that that's deeply destabilizing for a planet and that that would be a huge problem. I know that it's not the main point, but do we know why a planet would have that much variance? In the case of Earth versus Mars, it's believed the presence of a large moon has stabilized Earth's obliquity. And Mars does not have a large moon, has two very small moons. Mm, okay. But you could get it other ways. You could get some sort of resonance features that could also do that. And it's not as if Earth's orbit doesn't tilt. It does change historically between about 21 and 24 degrees, which is a huge difference, right? That's a difference between snowball Earth and, you know, tropical Earth. So Mars wobbling from like 20 to 40 is drastic. And in their simulation, they simulate planets that either start without ice, so they call that the warm start, which is kind of like how Earth started, or a cold start, where it's completely frozen and then they warm it up. And they wanted to define the results. So you get all sorts of different results, but they bucketed it into five categories to qualitatively describe it. So at a given time, a planet can be a moist greenhouse, which is not as fun as it sounds, once again, ice-free, Ice capped, which is what Earth is now. Ice belt, so that's actually ice around the equator. Or snowball. And Earth has had all of those except a moist greenhouse. I don't think we've ever fully had that one. I don't understand ice belt. Why would there be more likely to be ice around the equator than the poles? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, fair question. So sometimes if your pants are kind of loose and they might fall down, <laughs> you get a belt. But if you want to be able to lose that belt real fast in case you get a little bit heavier, you use an ice belt. And then, boom, it melts right off. In all seriousness, the best way of thinking about this is imagining Uranus because it is tilted almost exactly on its side. Oh. So while its north pole faces directly to the sun, the equatorial region gets almost no sunlight. Now, what's interesting in the Uranus case is then what about the South Pole? Because it also gets no sun. But imagine you had a case like Uranus, but with a six-month orbit or something like that. So, in fact, the equators would get the least amount of light and the poles would get the most. So a planet with a high obliquity close to its host star, it was colder in the equator than at the poles. That's so interesting. Yeah, cool, right? Not to jump the gun, but ice belts are not great for life. That makes sense. Yeah. So what they found in the case for the static planets, so those are the ones most like the Earth, if the planet starts warm, you can get pretty much every configuration, ice-free, ice belt, snowball, or polar ice cap. And it depends on how strong the star is compared to the sun and the obliquity. Those two configurations pretty much get everything. And the figures that are in the astrovite lifted from the paper really describe this well. So you get the two axes are how strong is the sun and what is the obliquity, the tilt of the planet. And then you can pick a position on those two and see which one you'd get. 
So if you pick the most Earth-like situation, you get polar ice caps. So that's good because that's what we actually have. And if you take the Earth and you increase the obliquity to like 30 degrees, then you get equatorial ice belts, interestingly enough, because the setup for Earth is ice. It's just a matter of where. But if you start a planet cold, pretty much you only can end up with an ice-free situation or a snowball situation. So that's kind of weird. And I didn't expect that. And I'm still not sure I understand it. Wait, did you say that if you have a cold start, you're more likely to end up ice-free? If I'm looking at figure three and it looks like more of the plot is ice-free for a warm start. I agree with you. For a cold start, you either get ice-free or snowball. Those seem to be the two options. If you want to get something else, it's almost impossible. Oh, I see. That seems so odd. Yeah, something about that doesn't fully make sense to me. I think it might have to do with the fact that like the core of the planet isn't warm and that if there's no internal heat from the planet that somehow you can't get the conditions to create polar ice caps. Oh, so we're saying that the inside of the planet is cold. Yes. That seems like a strange scenario to even look at. Well, I guess migrating planets do happen. Yeah, but even those aren't cold initially. Mm, I agree. Let's ignore it. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is the part of the paper I didn't fully understand. And I chalked it up to like they wanted to do a modeling paper. So they did a modeling paper. And that's okay. I'm not going to lie. I have done a modeling paper because a modeling paper was fun. (laughs) Which you're allowed to do. But when you're modeling, you know, you can just kind of do whatever. (laughs) So the other case is if you want to get an ice belt, you need a lot of land near the equator. Since water doesn't really freeze over easily enough, but land does when it's near the equator so that's kind of interesting and in the dynamic planets it's really hard to get ice caps or ice belts so if it's kind of wobbling all over the place and moving closer and farther to the sun and so on you can get ice free or snowball but the middle cases become harder and if we think the middle cases are important for life then That's a bad way to go. You want to be pretty stable. So my conclusions personally are Earth has had a life throughout its history. So I'm not sure that ice and life need to always go together. I think it could be useful and it could be a proxy for habitability. But if Earth can have microbial life without ice or with ice and we're searching for life in the universe and I feel like ice is the wrong thing to fixate on. But you might be able to detect it with James Webb looking at high albedo planets. So I appreciate the work. And it's reassuring that their model could reproduce Earth conditions and finds that it's not like, oops, we can't make the Earth make sense. (laughs) Guess that's it. I think the reality is there's some interesting work that could be done on this to take it up to a 3D simulation to make it a more dynamic model that includes other sources that can affect the climate, feedback, tectonics, and volcanism, impacts from meteors, things like that. So I think it was a cool paper, but I'm not sure that it means a whole lot. Aw, don't discount their science. But I was going to say, like, if it is a 1D model and it's latitude, do they take into account correlations? What do you mean? Like, how can you capture all the physics in a one-dimensional profile of a planet on latitude. Radially makes sense because you're probing the same like distance to the depth of the planet. Well, it's all happening on the surface. So there is no radial distance in that regard. Yeah, but it's still like you're just missing a lot of... I guess we need 3D models. I agree. I think that it's not a bad start. I mean, you got to start simple for sure. So... As someone who does 1D modeling, I'm more okay with that than with some other things. I wonder if anyone thought, is this actually important science to do or is it just something that we can do? And it does seem like a fun project. 
and I would have enjoyed doing this work. I'm just not sure it's that important. Not all science is important, but... Yeah, I think that what would make it much more relevant is a 2D model. As someone that also uses 1D models, I feel like just for this specific question, you need at least a 2D model, if not a 3D model, to really be able to say something pretty concrete because there's so many other factors once you start adding depth and things like that to your planet. Mm -hmm. But it's very cool. And I also would have absolutely loved to do a project like that. (laughs) (laughs) Seemed like it'd be so fun. Yeah, nice, contained, fun modeling project. Isn't this actually basically assuming that the planet is just half a hemisphere? If you're just doing latitude, it's the same at each... Oh, well, that's true. It is symmetric. So uh, I guess going back to the beginning of this episode, you finally found your dream model scenario. Well, (laughs) I don't exist in that world. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Bringing it all back together. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I think it's time for our one-sentence summaries. Sabrina, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So ice, ice machine learning. (laughs) strikes again in enabling the first statistically significant detection of neutrinos from diffuse emission in our galaxy and well there are a lot of challenges to finding life in the galaxy but finding planets with polar ice caps is probably not going to be that difficult nice So just to tack on a discussion question, I don't know how you guys feel. I feel like particle physics always makes me feel like, I don't know, uneasy because I'm not as familiar with all of these interactions, but I always Mm. wonder how much we can know when something is interacting like a neutrino that has to go through several different interactions to get to the detector and we're not actually detecting that thing, how confident we can be in our knowledge of what reactions should occur and must occur to get there. Well, I didn't mention this, but IceCube is actually, I don't know if subsidiary is the right word, but it's a part of CERN in a way. So the same particle physicists that work on IceCube work on CERN. And I also didn't mention that neutrinos were first detected like in a lab. They were able to produce neutrinos from interactions and then detect them. So I think because we've had this background of actually like observing the neutrino interaction or causing the neutrino interaction to happen in a lab and then making that observation, we're in a better place. But I think what you're saying is still true in that those types of neutrino interactions also happen on Earth and not just in space. So like actually telling the difference between those types of interactions is really, really difficult. Like where did the interaction actually happen? I feel like it's one of those things where we have to really trust in the theory. Yeah. And I don't know, as someone that partially does theory I feel like I'm always really skeptical (laughs) like how well do we know this theory well this is an area of ongoing study and there's all sorts of discoveries in particle physics on the decade time scale so there'll probably be plenty of new things that we learn and when you only get detections of handfuls of particles per year you know, it's kind of ridiculous how little data you have. So, yeah, I think it's going to come from theory and it's definitely going to come from better experiments. But I don't think there's any reason to believe that we have the full picture yet for the neutrinos. The things that I love to hear. I just love figuring out that there are holes and gaps in our theory because there always are. Yesterday, I had a really enjoyable interaction with a very senior researcher on planetary science missions. And he said, if you think you know everything, you get a bachelor's. If you know you know nothing, you get a master's. And if you know that nobody knows anything, then you get a PhD. Oh, I love that. I really enjoy that. 
I don't know if you guys felt this, but I felt like as I went along, I just got further and further into I don't know anything. No one knows anything. And I don't know. Now I just question everything. Yeah, once you believe that nothing is knowable, then you become a faculty member. (laughs) I feel like we have to be really careful because you can think that you know nothing, but then it can also lead to like really severe imposter syndrome. As like a severe imposter syndrome person, someone who suffers from severe (laughs) imposter syndrome, you have to be like very careful when you make these sort of blanket statements. Because I think if you already have some confidence in your natural ability to know something, then it's different. You can kind of think about things in this context. But yeah, it's tricky because you do know something. Well, this is a joke designed to, you know, tell you something interesting not a statement of truth it is a joke but it's also like there is some truth to it in a way oh yeah i think the antidote for feeling that you're the imposter is realizing that everyone's an imposter i've had people tell me to think about it that way and it's never worked for me (laughs) i don't know that that does it for me you want to believe that somebody has the answer and it could be you No, I don't think that that's quite it. I think the thing that helps me with imposter syndrome is recognizing that I'm actually wrong about being an imposter. Mostly that there are things that I do know really well and then like hanging on to the things. Those little tiny moments when I actually feel like I know something, like just hanging on to those positive things. I agree with you, Kirsten. Because those are the moments where you're like, actually, yeah, I'm not an imposter. And then I'm trying to go through every neutrino interaction with every particle. And I'm like, oof, I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not supposed to be an expert on everything. So I think that that about wraps up this episode. That concludes episode 84 of Astro Sound Bites. Abominable Ice. If you want to read the astrobytes we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. You can find all of our other fabulous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Now I was just going to make a bad joke about like people having to cross the ice belts every rotation every time they went around there walked around they'd have to cross it twice do you often walk around your planet <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i do walk a lot oh boy um plenty of blooper material on this one curious <laughs> i know i'm loving it Kid don't play. If there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves.